Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Ozband, our daf of the day, Masachet Nedarim, Daf Lamed Hey, page 35. Uh, we have a new mission on this daf. It's at the top of Amabet. Yardena, you'll take that. I want to address here, we've got a dilemma that's brought before Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman, and you've heard his name before, is was known as big guns, right? In this kind of civil law, although we're going to see that it's also about temple law, but property law, let's call it. Um, as compared to, I don't know. I don't know that he wasn't also an expert in many other things, but his name comes up most often in what I'm going to call here civil law or property law kinds of topics. Um, if we haven't done a full who's who, or even if we have, we'll do another one at another time. Today, I want to delve into the dilemma by Mini Rav Rav Nachman Yesh Olo. So this is a good question. And if we have, you know, had time to delve into all of the different issues of the konamot, meaning the when you have somebody swearing off of property, right, and the question of when that's going to be consecrated property, we would have asked this question already. Namely, mi'ila is the misuse of something that has been dedicated to the Beit HaMikdash, meaning the moment something gets dedicated to the Beit HaMikdash, Either it has to be, you know, actually used by the Beit HaMikdash, or at the very least, sometimes you can redeem it, sometimes, right? But otherwise, you say that the person, somebody who uses that same item is called Ma'al, right? He has done Mi'ilah. So, and we've talked about this as well in the past. Um, so what happens is that when an item is rendered kona, I meaning it's put off limits, right? It's as if it's consecrated property. It should be, is it then forbidden to the person who has made this vow, like consecrated property. And then once we say, and we've been saying this now for pages and pages, that it has comparisons, legitimate comparisons to consecrated property, does that mean that if somebody came to use that same item or the person who's prohibited from using that same, same item now comes to use it, are they then in a situation of um, violating or misusing consecrated property in that same way, I meaning it's not consecrated, it's simply put off limits because of the vow. But the question is, does that does that same status of mi'ila can that kick in for something that isn't actually a matter of hektesh, that isn't really a matter of temple property? So if Nachman answers, Amarlei, Tenei Tuha, you learn this from the Mishnah, right? The Mishnah was, you know, a couple of days ago, namely, Makom Shnotlin Alea Sachar Tipol Hanaala Hektesh. So if you're in a place where you would in fact take payment for returning that lost for returning that lost item, then there is in fact a benefit for returning the item, even in the event, right, that it would end up being a category of hectares. Your Dana, I think you were the one who talked about this, as I say, two days ago. La Memra ki hektesh, ma hektesh mi'ila, meaning so therefore the same way that something can be forbidden by taking a vow, and it would then be have all these similarities. To something that is consecrated, so too, just as with consecrated property, you are at risk of misuse, mi'ila. So too here, you could there's a liability, right, for misuse. The Gemara then is going to comment on this, right? Ketanai, right? It looks like it's one of these machloket tanaim. It's a dispute between the sages or the Mishnahic sages. Konam kikar What happens if somebody says? This loaf, meaning again, a loaf of bread, is kona, meaning it's off limits. It's off limits in the same way that something is hektesh would be off limits. Ve'achla, and then somebody eats it. Ben hu ven chaviro, whether he's the same person who declared it kona 
declared it off limits or somebody else ate it. Either way, ma'al, that is considered misuse. So therefore, we have this category, which I mentioned before, that you can end up with redeeming the the off-limitness of something, right? Usually, again, with consecrated property, what happens is you redeem it, and then you have a, we'll call it a desanctification, a deconsecration of of whatever had been consecrated. In this case, it's a matter of taking it out of the off-limit status for the whoever has been, whoever made it off-limit to himself. Now, what happens if you use a different formulation? Instead of saying, konam this so it's this loaf is konam like hektesh. Um, what if you say this loaf is for me like hektesh? Right here, you have somebody who is presumably not a kohen, and he has transformed with this statement. He has transformed this property, this loaf of bread, into consecrated property. and he eats it. Now he has, but he's also then violated the the stipulation that he can't use it in such a way that it counts as misuse. But if his friend then comes to eat, would eat it, that friend has not done anything wrong because it's not really hectic, right? It's just off limits to this same person. Um, so Rabbi Meir says you can't deconsecrate it or desanctify it as you you know take it out of this off limit status for the second phrasing because the second phrasing doesn't make it off limits for anybody but the person for whom it's off limits. Everybody else can use it however they want. So it's not inherent in the item that there's something holy about it or set aside about it, right? It's really just for this one individual who has put extra stricture on himself. So that was Rabbi Meir's opinion. The sages say, either way, both of these formulations are going to end up with a situation of without having me'ila, where, where nobody has misused consecrated property. Because according to the majority view here, there simply is no such category as misuse when you're coming to things that are off limits by virtue of vows. Now, Rabbi Meir clearly disagrees, right? Clearly, he says there is me'ila for a konam, for, for a vow that puts something off limits. But the Chachamim say, that doesn't mean you can use it. You violated your vow, but you haven't desecrated the item, the object that has this status in and of itself. Now we have another view. So it's the next generation or a couple of generations later, right, where we have a further discussion of the same kind of thing. Right? So says, my loaf is now prohibited to you, right? Off limits to you. You'll recall this case, right? He gives it to him as a gift. So then is is this a matter of misusing this 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 off limits property? And if so, is it the person who says this is off limits and I'm giving it to you as a pre- present, or the person who takes it? Says if you say that the person who gave the loaf should be the person who is really in the status of me'ilav ma'al, why would he be liable? Meaning he, the the loaf is not forbidden him to to begin with, so he hasn't misused it in handing it off to the person from whom he has prohibited it. You can say that it's, you want to say it's the second guy, the receiver, 
he's going to be liable for, for Mi'ila, but he can just say, I didn't want this, right? I wasn't trying to get something that's forbidden to me. I want to get a present. I want a loaf of bread that's fine for me. So what happens then is, Ravashi says, right, the second guy, the person who receives the loaf is, is culpable for mi'ila when he comes to use it, meaning maybe not just for holding it, you know, or for accepting it, but if he actually uses it when it's konam for him, it's off limits for him, then um, then he's liable for mi'ila. Namely, we have this principle that's going to apply to other cases of misuse of mi'ila that anybody who uses the consecrated item, right, for non-holy purposes, that even if he thinks that it's not holy, right, it's not what you think. It's the actual use of the item that has been consecrated. Even if you were mistaken, you have still nonetheless, you know, done mi'ila. You've reached this status of misuse, or uh, which fundamentally is a desecration. Mo'el avzo mo'el. So here too, we'll say that the person who got that loaf and then uses it is fundamentally doing me'ila, meaning misusing property that was off limits for him. The difficulty here, of course, is that this whole discussion, Rav Acha bar Rav Ava, no, I'm sorry, yeah, Bered Rav Avia, who says to Rav Ashi, right, all of this is then following according to the assumption that there is such a thing as me'ila for vows, as compared to the Chachamim, who said there is no such thing as me'ila for vows. So it seems like they paskin like Rebbe Meir, but that's a strange psak then, given that it goes against the majority. And that question, I think, would take um, more investigation than our Dafyomi purposes can handle. Yeah, I, you know, it's an interesting uh, discussion here. Like, it's basically, again, doing a typical Gemara thing, which is taking two halachic categories um, and seeing how do they play with each other, right? Like, that's a lot of what the Gemara likes to do. Like, we've discussed the halacha, we understand it, and now we want to say, like, okay, if I bring this halacha in or this concept in, what do the do, what do the two do together? And that's essentially what Rav Nachman, at least, is starting to explore. Yeah, and I think that even Chachamim are doing it as well. They just don't say, they say, these two things that look similar are not really similar. And Rav Nachman says these two things that look similar are more similar than Chachamim want to say. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to summarize it. All right, I'm going to move on now to the next staff, uh, which is a continuation of our previous Mishnah. Um, and again, we're giving an example of, we'll keep talking about it the way we did before, which is if Ruvain makes a neder that Shimon is not allowed to get any benefit from Ruvain, right? These are some things that Ruvain is allowed to still do for Shimon, okay? Ruvain could basically separate out Truma and Maser for Shimon. And he could sacrifice for him the bird offerings of Zavin, Zavot, and women who have given birth. So let's say Ruvain was a Kohen, he still would be allowed to sacrifice these types of korbana that Shimon would bring, even though Shimon, even though the neder is, Shimon cannot benefit from Ruvain. Chata'ot um, v'ashamot, also chata'ot and ashamot, milamdo midrash halachot v'agadot, and the person who made the neder is allowed to teach the other person midrash halacha nagarata, aval lo yilamdu mikra, but he cannot teach him actual scripture itself, meaning he can't actually uh, teach him uh, Tanakh itself, and it's going to explain 
why that is. But he can uh, teach his children. Um, and the reason for that is because teaching your children is sort of its own separate mitzvah. And it's not for that person's benefit, but it's for the benefit of his, uh, for, of his children. Uh, because that's an actual mitzvah itself. So the Gemara is going to explain some of these itself. But the Gemara begins with a fascinating discussion that is based on this, which is the following. Right? They ask this question. Are Kohanim, who basically do the avoda in the Beit HaMikdash, are they acting on behalf of us? Are they acting as our shlichim, as our agents? Or agents of heaven. And the answer to this question actually relates to our mission. This is sort of the essential question of Kohanim. Who do, Kohan, do, who do Kohanim work for, right? Are they working for us or are they working for Hashem? And so the Gemara says, Lamai nafkamine, what's the practical difference? Lamudar hanat, exactly this case, right? To someone who is subject to a, to a nedar that doesn't allow him to derive benefit from a certain Kohen. I amart deshluche didan if you say Kohanim are considered our shlichim, our agents, Haminaile, then the co- the Kohen, right, is ben- you know, is benefiting when he offers that person sacrifices. So in other words, you wouldn't be allowed to do it in that case. But if you say the Kohen is really an agent of God, right, an agent of heaven, Shari, then it would be permitted. Right. And so therefore, my what is the role of the coin? So it exactly. So according to this Mishnah, if Reuven made a nether that Shimon can't benefit from him and Reuven is a coin, he's allowed to perform certain Kohanic things for him because it would seem from this Mishnah, at least that what that Shimon, that he's acting on Shamayim's behalf, on God's behalf and not on Shimon's behalf. So the Gemara basically does this by using our Mishnah to answer this Toshma to answer this question. Come and learn Jitanan, Makriva Lapkin and Zevin. So it uses exactly our Mishnah to prove this essential question. Right? Right? If you say Kohanim are our agents, right, then the Kohen is benefiting the Zav by acting as his agent, and he shouldn't be allowed uh, to do this. Now the Gemara is going to try to say that maybe actually it's the opposite, right? But according to your reasoning, that the Mishnah, that our Mishnah proves that Kohanim actually acts on behalf of God. Let the Mishnah teach and said he may sacrifice all korbanot. Why does it single out only specific korbanot? So we say what that those uh, th- that korbanos that aren't about atonement, that aren't about kapara, are different. And um, so, what case can a Kohen? Uh, do these type of korbanas, it can only be mixure kapara. It can only be one that is lacking atonement. And we're going to see now Rabbi Yochanan is going to explain uh, what is it that's different about the category of mixure kapara, one that is lacking atonement, one that's not brought for kapara. All offerings require the owner's consent for being sacrificed, except for offerings uh, which lack, uh, which don't have a kapara with it. Because we find a man can bring, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, this type of 
offering for this type of korban for his sons and daughters who are kitanim, meaning they don't actually have consent. And they quote here, because it says, this is the law of the Zab. Whether they're small, big, or whether they're small, right? So in other words, uh, what they're trying to say here is, is that the law here refers to Zab and Zabim. But Rabbi Yochanan learns from here is, is that these are offerings which are brought for minors. In other words, they don't even have their legal consent. And, uh, and, and, and even an owner who's an adult doesn't actually even need to give consent. Okay, so based on this, what the Gemara is arguing is that this Mishnah only, op- only mentions sacrifices which don't have kapara with them. Okay, and therefore, you don't need the owner's consent for them. So this would seem to say that the Kohanim, when there's a question of benefit, right, who's, who can't give any benefit, can only do it for these types of sacrifices because you don't actually need consent. And so here the Gemara is trying to say, maybe this Mishnah doesn't actually prove it. But if you had Korbana where you did need consent, then in this type of situation with the Neder, the Kohen would not be allowed uh, to do it. So the Gemara is going to continue to discuss this a little bit more. But I think the piece here that's very interesting is sort of this, uh, how the Gemara takes a Mishnah that seems to be purely halachic and essentially ask, what is the most fundamental question about Kohanim, right? Who is it that a Kohen actually services? Um, and I, I, I'm not sure the Gemara comes to a straightforward conclusion, um, although it seems to lead a little bit more towards, you know, Shamayim. But I think this is a theme that we should see. Does this appear in other Gemaras? Do other Gemaras answer uh, differently? Um, but again, the question of who the Kohen is actually working for, uh, it really changes how we understand Kohanim and what their job really is. I like this. I think it's an interesting discussion. I wouldn't have expected it to pop up here, you know, but once it's here to, to ask this question about the Kohanim, I, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I love how it pops up here. It's like it's so unexpected, but it's like a real good existential question here. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rate us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP in our Talking Time with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 